Welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Clint. Hey, I'm Tony. Welcome back. Uh, We have a guest coming on the show today. Great. A guest episode. Love these. And her name is Dr. Janet Kellogg-Ray, and she wrote this book, Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark. Uh, Just discovered this, and it's all about thinking through different forms of creationism. Mm -hmm. Evolution. Evolution. uh, How do different... Folks in those camps try to make the science fit and the Bible fit. Yep. Ongoing topic. Yeah, yeah. Within Christendom. Are they at odds or not? And then, yeah, how can you be faithful to scripture, faithful to God, and faithful to science? Can you do it all? Mm -hmm. Find out on this episode. Right. And frankly, I'll say this later in the episode, but uh, we just got done recording with her. But yeah, I just, I, I have found myself not really feeling too confident about my factoids about evolutionary theory. Agreed, yeah. Uh, It's more that my biblical interpretation has led me to a place of openness about the topic. Mm -hmm. And I never did the legwork to really- To figure out what might actually be true. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And so this is a great first step. Uh, We really enjoyed our conversation with Janet and hope you enjoy. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Janet. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you have written a book Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark. And I just want to hear, our listeners would have heard a brief bio a moment ago, but what was kind of your motivation for writing this? And who's the target audience? Who are you hoping to impact, to persuade with this writing? Well, a big, big problem is that most people who question or deny evolution Everything that they know about evolution comes from anti-evolution sources. Sure. Mm. So I wrote this book to be scientifically sound. And at the same time, I want my readers to know that it comes from a person who is all the way on Team Jesus. Mm. Because what I, I found out that questioners really aren't going to seek out sources if they think that evolution is just one big atheistic lie. And I also know that the science evidence can quickly become daunting. Um, I found that in reading through almost everything I can get my hands on on this topic, that the science pretty quickly can get into graduate level Mm. um, genetics and, and, and paleontology. And so my goal in writing this book was, number one, to be scientifically sound, but to present the evidence in a user-friendly way. I wanted it to be accessible. Um, I wanted to give a vocabulary to questioners. You know, it's really hard to start from scratch and articulate a question if you really don't know where to begin to ask that question. And so it was definitely my goal to target the non-scientist. I feel very strongly, uh, just as I do when I teach my courses and I have uh, non-biology majors in my classes, I really like teaching the non-majors because just just because someone is not a scientist or they're not uh, working in some kind of scientific field, does not mean that they don't need an understanding of biological evolution. Even though they may not be our scientists, uh, these people are still our teachers. 
There are pastors, there are politicians, there are policymakers, and very importantly, there are school board members. You know, I'm here in Texas, and about every three, four, five years in Texas, it becomes a big deal uh, with the state school board, mm. where we are going to have to redo our science curriculum for the public schools, and we have to add verbiage into our curriculum, something along the lines of, uh, studying the strengths and weaknesses of scientific theories. Well, it's very obvious that the scientific theory in question is not gravitational theory. We're not asking <laughs> right. our students to question the strengths and weaknesses of gravity. Uh, the unspoken theory that they want to be examined is always evolution theory. So non-scientists are called upon all the time to make decisions regarding school curriculums, public policy, even church faith statements. And so it was my goal to target people who either uh, were not scientists or uh, perhaps had not ever studied evolutionary biology in any depth. Um, for example, I personally know two medical doctors who are exceptional doctors in their field, but both are staunch young earth creationists. Wow. Um, my husband is a medical doctor, and he kind of was on the same path as I was, you know, in coming out of young earth creationism to acceptance of the science evidence. You know, and he will tell you that in medical school, you're so consumed with all the amount of information you have to learn, you don't spend time on the theoretical. So I wanted to do this. I wanted to give the, ev the evidence for evolution, the age of the earth, in a user-friendly, very accessible way but then I also wanted to make um, a point to, to, to draw a picture of what belief in creationism and all of its iterations demands of us intellectually. And that became what was the breaking point for me, uh, was if I accepted a literal genesis, it meant that I was going to have to dis deny science evidence that I accept in all other areas of my life. Mm. Well, I, that's well, what I wanted to ask was, personally, what's your journey been? And as far as your point of view on this, were you a young earth creationist at some point? And what's your story? Oh, absolutely. I was raised in a very conservative, probably would have been considered a fundamentalist mm -hmm. uh, church, a wing of the restoration movement, the mainstream churches of Christ. And church was absolutely central to our lives. We went to church three times a week without fail. And you know, probably the most scarring part of that childhood was that I never saw Wizard of Oz until I was an adult because it always broadcast on Sunday night. Oh, so oh. I, I, I didn't know any of the Disney shows or anything oh, like that. Wow. Uh, but church was definitely central in, our, in my family's, uh, our home life. But I will say that evolution was pretty much a non-issue in the church of my growing up years. Um, we were literalist. We spoke where the Bible spoke, and we were silent where the Bible was silent, and we no more would have debated or discussed evolution than we would have debated or discussed the existence of Jesus. And so it really just was... Um, 
not an issue there. We took Genesis exactly as it is written. So by not an issue, you mean it was sort of assumed by everybody that obviously evolution Absolutely. is not true. It would, yeah. Right. There's no reason to even debate yeah. it because, you know, we all know we didn't come from monkeys. You know, there right. might be something thrown out like that. Like it's, it's almost it was, laughable that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Hmm. Interesting that you say that because a few years ago, um, on my mother's 80th birthday, the whole family gathered at the old home church, and there was a preacher there who was actually my kid's age. He was not an old guy. He was a young guy. And it was um, happened to be that Sunday. It was Hot Topic Bingo. He covered it all. But uh, <laughs> when he came to the evolution part, his comment was, when you get to heaven, God will laugh at you if you believe this. So he actually used wow. that term, that God will laugh at you. Wow. Um, right. Okay. But I, I, my first recollection of something not quite being right there was probably in middle school, junior high science, and then on into high school biology. Uh, for the first time, I studied in depth what we called then the animal kingdom. And we worked our way through all the different um, phyla of animals from, you know, starfish and worms and all of these things that I guess I, as a kid, I never realized these things are considered animals too, along with all the warm and fuzzy things. Mm -hmm. And I definitely remember having the thoughts that these animals, as diverse as they are, really seem to have a connection. Um, assuming that everything was specially and uniquely and individually created by God in six literal days, it never occurred to me that there could have been a connection between mm. these animals because it looked for all the world like these animals had the same systems, the same organs, many of the same things going on here, just modified mm -hmm. in different ways. And, and, and I've heard creationists say in rhetoric like, hey, uh, don't fix what ain't broke. God had a good idea and he... He just, ran with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's some problems with that, that, yeah. that line of reasoning too. But, you know, I just, I, I, I didn't really have the vocabulary at the time to articulate any of these questions. I just remember kind of wondering about it. But again, in my estimation, evolution was synonymous with atheism. Mm. And so I didn't really go there. I remember just trying to think, mm. you know, can we just close one eye and squint and pretend like the fossil record uh, is the same as the six days of creation? You know, I even went to a Christian university and I was a biology major and I had a wonderful biology education. But even then the professors would say, uh, here's the section in the textbook on evolution. You need to read it. You need to know about it. And that was about it. It was dropped. And about probably about 10 years after um, I graduated, I began to read a who is a, he, actually he's an old earth creationist, but he was a geologist. And I began to read his um, material specifically because he talked about an ancient earth and it just that was just the gateway for me. You know, hmm. here was a man who was a Christian man, but he was also a man of science. And he said, you know, there's another way to read Genesis. And that just opened the floodgates for me. Mm -hmm. And then about 
about this time that uh, I began really investigating, there was a big, big, big problem at my alma mater, the Christian University, where uh, from where I graduated. There was a young earth apologist who's still around these days who made a lot of trouble for a couple of the biology professors, one of whom was one of the dearest uh, professors to me. I worked for him. I taught labs for him. Uh, but this apologist went in uh, and demanded the careers of these two professors because by this time they were overtly teaching mm. evolution just five, six years after I graduated. Mm. And this apologist ruined their careers, wow. ruined wow. their careers. Uh, they resigned and um, never were the same. And so this was really motivation for me to begin to read both secular materials uh, materials written by uh, believers who also accepted the evidence for evolution, and there was just no stopping mm. from that point. That's that's really helpful. Mm. Maybe our our audience would find helpful just where you and I are coming from yeah, too, sure. just so there's no confusion. Yeah, yeah. My journey with this similarly grew up in a young Earth creationist home and church. Uh, I would say it. Evolution was an issue. Uh, it was addressed uh, from the pulpit and various materials uh, and presumably shown to be wrong mm -hmm. in that way. I remember laying in bed at night, I had this book called Dinosaurs in the Bible and it was oh. a picture book. And I looked at this thing every night for a couple of years. I thought I was, I was enraptured. Like, mm -hmm. oh man. Dinosaurs, cool. I yeah. know, exactly. And I, I felt jealous of these early humans who had the chance to ride on a uh, tame some. Yeah. yeah, and I was bummed out, <laughs> but also excited by reading it. And then um, uh, you you tell the story in the book that um, I really liked. Well, it was it's tragic in a way, but of students that felt like you were like this atheist professor oh, yeah. uh, challenging their faith. And um, I remember being that student. Like there's that documentary slash movie God's, God's not, not dead. dead, and I I was that kid. Yeah. I took a I I'm a bio uh, undergrad major, and I remember we had like. It was at Kent State University, so public school. We had classes on evolution, uh, just pr j just that. You know, it's not just the yeah. afterthought. It was like let's learn about all the theory. And I remember coming equipped to class. I'd have my You'd Philip have Johnson Darwin on trial, <clears throat> and I'm leafing through as he's lecturing. I'm like, oh, I know what to say next. <laughs> Bam! Evolution's a tautology, survival of the fittest. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and. Yeah, at some point, really my journey with this was, and I feel ashamed by it, maybe. Um, Man, I feel like you say that a lot on this podcast. Mate, it's a free space. This is a learning podcast. No, no shame here. I'm ashamed a bit that my journey with this was never led by science. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, yep. I've, at every point along the path, I found what science-y things. To back up your position. And, and in fact, I still feel that way, even though like, mm -hmm. so so my journey toward like embracing a theistic evolution view was more scriptural. I just felt, yeah. I became convinced of a non-literal reading of Genesis through the likes of folks like John Walton, who I think endorsed the book. I was del oh, really? delighted to oh, see that. Oh, that's great. Uh, so like, uh, I just felt free to, oh, well, I don't think... Genesis 1, nor really the rest of Genesis, mm -hmm. is trying to say anything about science. So I'll just kind of let it ride. And so similarly, I feel very naive about uh, the 
scientific evidence that undergirds my current belief. Yeah, I'd agree. My story is pretty similar. Grew up, sounds like we all had pretty similar upbringings, actually. Grew up in the church with a particular sort of wooden view of scripture and a literalist view of scripture. And it wasn't until I started in my teen years wrestling with faith and doubts and was introduced to William Lane Craig and the arguments of natural theology that I found, oh, here's a guy who I really respect intellectually. He's a bright guy who apparently has no problem endorsing an older earth, um, or he's at least open to discussing that, where it had been sort of taboo for me. Because, and I think part of that was the fear is, well, if, if, if I can't trust Genesis, then how do I know Jesus is real or whatever, you know? Um, but as my understanding, like now these days, to your point, my understanding of what scripture is, what scripture is trying to do, and particularly what the opening chapters of Genesis are trying to do. Um, there's just, the stakes are much lower for me now. Mm. So so I've been afforded sort of this freedom to remain agnostic about it. And, and like you, I have some vague memory of the arguments on each side. Like I know the eyeball is apparently too complex to evolve and there's irreducible complexity. Right. And then there's, this, there's these buzzwords. Yeah, yeah, I remember that back and forth, but I'm not that intimately acquainted with where the data is at. And so I've been comfortable siding with the scientific majority, which it seems like the consensus is like I do with everything else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I do with cosmology, all of it. I'm trusting the scientific method. Tylenol when I take, I'm not like, (laughs) yeah. Doubting this technology we're using to talk right now that came from the scientific method. It's, it serves me really well in every other area. So I'm, but my faith and my relationship with God isn't hanging in the balance Mm -hmm. based on where I come down on this issue. So I can, so I feel in this conversation, like a genuine inquirer. I'm really keen to learn. I don't know how I should think about it. So, well, I think you. I think you brought up a point that you were not unique in that your 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 examination of the issue was not led by the science. It was led by your theology. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I find that is true almost 100 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. If someone uh, is anti-evolution their information comes from anti-evolution apologetic sources. Yeah. Mm. Um, do you, so for those worried about like the connection between evolution and atheism, let's say, I mean, there is that trope up from the God's Not Dead movie of there's a professor with an ax to grind. Like, hey, train up your kids uh, with, I don't know, yeah, anti-evolution or intelligent design or creationist fodder, some apologetics to help them defend their faith because there are these scary professors out there that that are actively trying to undermine your children's Christian faith. Uh, pr- probably cross-disciplinary, really. I mean, it's not just the science professors that we would be no. issuing words of caution. Philosophy professors, yeah, across yeah. the board. Mm-hmm. That, that want, that's the idea of floating out. Mm-hmm. in a lot of churches, I would say, and youth groups that yep. people are trying to undermine your kids' faith. So equip them. Is I don't know, in your experience mm-hmm. in academia, have you have you seen that? Is that a, a genuine threat out there that we need to worry about? Well, as you mentioned, I talked in the book about a couple of my students pushing back against me, and I felt uh, very honestly embarrassed that that's who they thought I was, that I was this atheistic professor that their parents and pastors had warned them about. And 
since the book came out, I've had that happen again. Just last semester, a student uh, pushed back against me, always on the last day of school. Mm. They don't want to risk their grades again. And then I and and none of them ever um, took me up on an offer to meet and talk about it. Uh, but there is hmm. definitely that fear among Christian parents, Christian students going off to college. Um, and as far as encountering other um, academics who are ac- uh, antagonistic or, as you said, an axe to grind against religion, honestly, I don't think that is tremendously as prevalent as we'd be led to believe in these God's Not Dead movies and in some of the apologetics uh, literature. Now, of course, there are scientists like Richard Dawkins with a true axe to grind mm-hmm. against religion. Uh, but in my experience, these types of scientists are rare. Now, scientists may not uh, be people of faith. They may be atheists, but they don't have a problem with someone being a person of faith and a person of science. You know, interestingly, and he would probably hate this, but Dawkins and Ken Ham actually are in complete agreement in this case mm-hmm. that religion and evolution are completely incompatible. But those two are on the extremes of the scale. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, they are the two loudest voices. So they get. Uh, the most attention. And that's why I think we see this in the on TV, in, in, in these movies, uh, in, uh, you know, just in the tales that we tell our kids before they go off, that there is, that there are uh, professors who are just lying in wait to sabotage their faith at the quickest, most unexpected moment. You know, and it's it's actually no wonder that students come in like my students did with their guards up. Um, a few years ago, I took a look at some of the apologetics, some of the more popular pop apologetics printing houses, and I looked specifically at the literature that they were producing for um, upcoming college students and upcoming parents of college students. And there was one brochure that was very long, very detailed, and the title of it was Welcome to the War. Mm. And so just from the very beginning, we set up what the expectation, that your faith is going to be attacked. Mm-hmm. And these apologetics houses not only warned against Uh, secular universities, but they said, and this was the actual term they used, that Christian universities had also been infiltrated Infiltrated. with professors who it was their goal to um, destroy the faith of a student. So it's understandable that students come in with their guards up, Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think in real life there there, there is that much overt antagonism, although you know, absolutely, there are going to be professors who are not people of faith, but that doesn't mean that they are saying that faith and science can't coexist. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, um, a pro- biology professor at my alma mater and I were ha- having uh, some correspondence back and forth, and he told me just this one little fact, and it's just really stuck with me. He said that when he uh, talks to his colleagues, 
in secular universities that he finds that his colleagues in secular universities have a really hard time convincing their Christian students about the truth of evolution. Mm. While he, on the other hand, as a professor in a Christian university, does not have the same hard time convincing Christian students of the truth of evolution. Mm. It's almost as if when students go into a secular university, they are assuming the professor is an atheist, and Mm. they're assuming they're going to uh, teach you evolution because it's an atheistic uh, pursuit. But this particular professor was saying his students let down their guard a bit, and they're more willing to listen to him because they know him as a Christian at a Christian university. So I found that very, um, very enlightening, very informative Mm. about uh, why students throw up guards and what um, allows them to let down that guard a bit. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It rings true from each of our stories, really. I think we each mentioned by name someone that we viewed as a godly man or woman. Or on Team Jesus. That uh, opened the door to feeling comfortable about this sector of the realm of ideas. Yeah. So, yep. Totally. Well, uh, I'd like to dive into, I guess, some of the the meatier content of thinking through some of the uh, different, well, we've mentioned them by name briefly, like young earth and old earth. I'd like to delineate just really what we mean by that. But before we do that, I like the term, I hadn't heard it before, but it makes a total sense, uh, this term gish galop, which I think, I think refers to, uh, is it Stanley Gish? Am I getting that right? Dwayne Gish. Dwayne. Dwayne Gish, the yeah, the Gish Gallop. Yep. Uh huh. What is that? What is that? Well, I. Well, it's. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, it's named for a, a famous creationist debater whose primary debate tactic was when it was his turn to speak, he would just one after another just pour out question after question or observation after observation. And there was no way under the allotted time that his opponent could ever answer every question mm-hmm. or every observation. So then when it was Gish's turn again, he would then point out how weak his opponent's arguments are because they can't even answer this list of questions <laughs> yeah. that I just threw out here on the stage. And so the Gish Gallup just became known even outside of creationist uh, debates as a way to avoid fact-based arguments. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do to win a debate according to this particular strategy is all you have to do is sow doubt. Mm-hmm. And with so much doubt here on the table, ladies and gentlemen, how can you ever accept evolution? Yep. Look at all the unanswered questions. So that was just a strategy uh, used by this one particular um, hmm. apologist, and it's just kind of gone off from there. So I bring that up to, uh, I don't want to be. We don't want to be gishing today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Although I can see how it can feel that way. Like you brought up right away a a feeling that I've had of uh, very quickly, even something like Answers in Genesis uh, and some of their articles, I feel over my head right away. Like in some of the scientific things that they're bringing up. And like you said, uh, might require graduate level training to sort it all out. And I don't, so I don't want our listeners to feel that way either from the opposite end of this uh, of like, Oh, they just laid out a bunch of different, you know, arguments for evolution and didn't consider the other one. So we'll try to kind of tailor it and just a few key points and not overwhelm Mm -hmm. anybody. But 
but yeah, let's let's kind of dive in. I, in your book, uh, you gave four or five different categories that we might um, are like the major views in this space: young Earth creationism, old Earth creationism, intelligent design, theistic evolution, and then like naturalism, scientism, maybe the more atheistic version of that. So. Yeah, let's let's just talk through each of those briefly. What do they mean and what are the main sticking points that they're claiming? Well, first of all, I would just like to point out that when I use the term creationist or creationism, I'm using that term to describe a particular approach to evidence, an approach to scripture. I'm not at all using it to describe someone that may accept the science, but still accredits God with being the ultimate source of it all. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are probably people who um, accept evolution that would probably still consider themselves uh, to, to recognize God as creator. So that's not what I'm talking about. When I say creationism or creationist, I'm talking about a specific approach to evidence in a specific approach Th to scripture. That's really good. I wonder how much of the battle is that, like the naming of things. Yeah. Like what? Right. If, what if we call it evolutionist creationism? Yeah. Like I'm a I'm I'm a creationist. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that I God just, is the source God. of yeah, all. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, so young Earth creationist, uh, just like the name would imply, uh, considers the Bible to be the only firsthand account of creation. So all evidence, all science evidence, therefore must be viewed through what they call a Bible lens. You know, for, for example, in Genesis, the order of creation would be fruit trees and sea creatures and birds and then land animals. Well, in the fossil record, plants that uh, bear seeds in a fruit are relative newcomers. So in a situation such as this, where the Genesis creation order conflicts with what we see in the fossil record, young earth creationists always assume the Bible is correct and that scientists are misinterpreting the fossil record. Uh, there is a molecular genesis, a molecular geneticist with answers in Genesis, lots of S's there, yeah. uh, that made the statement, which I included in the book, uh, that she said, what I believe isn't based on the evidence, it's based on the Bible. So you have this Bible lens, as they call it. Uh, for young earth creationists, everything was specially created individually and in the order given during the six days of creation week uh, uh, with a time frame of maybe six to 10,000 years ago. All humans are genetically descended from Adam and Eve. And as far as the flood goes, a young earth creationist will say that the Noah's flood was worldwide and destroyed all life, including humans that weren't on the ark. Now, old earth creationists, um, generally differ from the young earth variety by accepting the evidence for an ancient earth and an ancient universe. Old earth creationists will still say that everything was specially and individually created, but the creation week is interpreted one of two ways usually. Um, I think the most prevalent is what they call the day-age view of it, whereas each day of creation was actually 
you know, millions, billions of years long. It's still, everything was still specially created. There is no common ancestry. It's just the days were not 24-hour days. Mm -hmm. uh, there is also another view that there was a creation that existed before Eden, and then along came Eden with the six-day, seven-day Genesis account. Uh, still within this model, old earth creationists will think that science will ultimately agree with the Bible. Adam and Eve were historic, uh, but probably one of the most major departures besides the age of the earth from young earth creationists is not all old earth creationists require that Noah's flood be worldwide. Some do, some don't, but you have that little bit of... Um, Okay. Of, of a difference there among some old earth creationists. Intelligent design. Intelligent design is not really a view separate from creationism, but intelligent design is best understood as a way of defending creationist views. Uh, intelligent design arguments are used by both young earth and old earth creationists. You will find both of those camps, young and old camps, will refer consistently to arguments uh, from design. So intelligent design really isn't a camp, so to speak, by itself. It is a creationist approach to um, all living things, but it, it comes from um, a a little bit more of a philosophical difference than some of the more creationist camps uh, will put forth. But just very briefly, intelligent design holds that living systems and structures are so complex they could not have possibly evolved. And that living things are so complex that all parts and pieces had to have been in place from the very beginning for these features to have been functional. Uh, intelligent design would hold that all life was specially and uniquely designed by an intelligent designer. That, that word design just replaces the word created in when you're when you're in an intelligent design context. Was it was it in the um, I'm going to botch the names. Maybe. Is it Kitzmiller versus Do Dover Dover and Kitzmiller? Uh huh. And I, I recall yeah. there. Um, <laughs> At one point, the textbook in question uh, did a revised edit where they took out create, or is that right? And just put in design. And right. someone found that and they're like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> and, and one thing I didn't put in the book, but it's interesting. You can, you can to the Google for that, um, they, the, the person who was doing the overlaying even found a place in a, one of the earlier drafts where they hadn't even deleted the term creationist. And so what you had there was that they, they were they were intending to write pro-design proponents and it ended up being design creationist ponents at the end. <laughs> oh. They didn't get the whole word wow. um, That's fascinating. erased out. So sorry, yeah. I just threw in for our listener, this is a case two thousand five, I think. Two thousand five, uh huh. Uh of uh and it's in Texas, right? No, it was Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Um that, yeah, the school board was wondering, can we use a textbook that has right. intelligent design or creationism? And anyway, okay. 
So, Hmm. you know, that's basically, you know, the intelligent design literature won't make any stance on Genesis because uh, they claim to um, not be a religious approach. They uh, they claim to be an alternate view to evolution, and we can discuss more of that in detail later if you want to. But um, intelligent design literature will not directly refer to God. They'll just refer to an intelligent designer. Mm-hmm. But even without being named, it's 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 perfectly clear that the designer in question is the God of the Bible. Mm. Um, theistic evolution would be someone who, and that's been called different things. It's been called um, evolutionary creationism. It's been called theistic evolution. Francis Collins calls it biologos. That's where mm. that term came from. Oh. He, yeah, he coined that term, uh, biologos, you know, for the biological uh, living things on the planet and logos, you know, referring to the wisdom and the source being of God. So there really is no one particular name for that camp. I would just say that would describe people of faith uh, that who accept the science evidence for evolution and for the age of the universe. And so, again, um, there are multiple different approaches to the creation account, to Genesis account, uh, but all of these tend to focus on the who and the why of the Genesis story and not the how and the when, trying to get historical, scientific. And just a point of clarification, I feel like I've read some ID theorists that would describe themselves as theistic evolutionists, but would say something like, so, so, sorry, when I think of the term theistic evolution, I sometimes I'm brought to mind of the notion that uh, God, some at some little moments in time, however many we might talk about, whatever cases of irreducible complexity come up, that that's when God kind of like guided the process. He just nudges it every now and then. Yeah, yeah. Special, that- special acts of creation. I'm going to make this mutation and then it'll domino effect for however many thousand years and then this mutation and then like that. I have yeah, I have heard that be described as theistic evolution, but mm. that's really, would you say that's really, let's call that more in the creationist camp or? I would, okay. absolutely. I would absolutely because, um, you know, that is not a question for science. Mm. You know, that's mm. that may be a philosophical question, it may be a faith question, but as you described it, that's not a question for science. Okay. Mm. And there are, um, as in any of these camps, there are um, a continuum, there's a continuum. Sure. And so there would be people who describe themselves as intelligent design proponents who would allow for uh, what they would term microevolution, you know, changes in dogs and cats and horses and things like that. But they don't allow for what they would call macroevolution, which in reality, those aren't terms used by biologists. This, it's, there's evolution and there's evolution. Mm. You know, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't divide it into micro and macro. So in that case, you know, you would have maybe someone who is an ID proponent who would call themselves an evolutionary creationism, but they probably would not accept what they would call macroevolution. Okay. And then the, the, the scientism or naturalism view would just be, uh, 
that's all science is all there is, that the right. natural world is all there is, and that religious faith of any sort is just useless. That science explains it all. Science explains it all would mm-hmm. be a naturalist or um, scientism point of view. Yeah. So, okay, mm. let's let's camp out at the young earth, old earth area for a moment. Um, okay. And the the Bible, using the Bible as a lens to sort out some of the science, uh, maybe help us out here. It seems like they're like, for instance, the answers in Genesis crowd or in the Institute of Creation Research, I think it is, are the big uh-huh. two players here. And and what I gather from what a lot of what they're trying to do is, hey, look, the science actually does support the Bible. Maybe it's a two pronged approach, like highlighting where science does corroborate and then anything that seems to not corroborate uh, aspersions and doubt mm-hmm. is cast upon it. But but I f- there's this whole phenomenon of like flood geology of, right. of people trying to put together this uh, science-y or scientific front. Like here is a way of explaining all the stuff that you see in the fossil record. Look, there is this... There was this big old tumultuous event in Genesis. It still got mixed up. Global flood and and who knows what can go on in such a crazy catastrophic event. Tectonic plates are all jangled up and you know, yeah. I've had a flood in my basement and everything went everywhere. It's very disruptive. Yeah. So imagine it all over the world. Yeah, yeah. That that's what caused all the stuff that we see in science. There nothing about what we're finding out there in the world and people digging up stuff has says anything about mm-hmm. That that the creation story in Genesis is wrong, I feel like that is something I would read out there or hear. Can help help us sort through that. Well, you know, first of all, I would just like to say that there actually is geologic evidence that there was a catastrophic flood of some sort in the Middle East around the Mediterranean about seventy five hundred years ago. And so I'm sure those people, those hunter-gatherer, early farmers, I'm sure it felt like the end of the world to those people because we have this geological evidence that it was a massive flood. And so I don't find it surprising that we have many, many flood stories in the collective memories and in the cultures from that part of the world from uh, before even Israel Mm -hmm. told her story Mm -hmm. um, with a different theological point of view. Uh, But what we do not have, we absolutely have no evidence, uh, whether geologically or in the fossil record, of a world wide catastrophic flood. Well, you mentioned you had a flood in your basement. Well, we know all too well recently, you know, in the last, what, has it been 15 years now since Katrina? What Mm. happens following a massive hurricane in New Orleans and then the levees breaking, Mm. we know what happens all too well when floodwaters come in to where humans are living. And when the floodwaters go away, things aren't just settled out in nice, neat layers Mm -hmm. with the most primitive plants and animals in the first layer, and then a bit more complex, and then a bit more complex, and finally we have human beings in the newest layers. We know from modern-day floods, that's not what tumultuous and receding floodwaters do. They Mm. don't leave things layered out and settled out in very 
predictable layers. It's chaotic. Everything is torn apart. Everything is torn limb from limb. Uh, we also know how rocks weather and erode. We know how sand dunes form. We know how limestone forms. And when these processes take eons. We also know that turbulent waters settling out over a year's time could not have possibly produced these formations. But probably the biggest problem is found in the fossil record. There is order in the fossil record. Mm. A consistent, recognizable order in the fossil record. I found this fascinating uh, researching my, my book, is that back in the 18th and 19th century, the 1700s and the 19, uh, 1800s, when geology and paleontology were new sciences, and decades, 100 years or more in some cases, before Darwin published, mm. these geologists and paleontologists were recognizing this characteristic of the geological record, that these fossils were in very recognizable and very consistent order. Now, these geologists and paleontologists of the 18th and 19th century understood that this did not support the Genesis account, and the reactions varied. Uh, quite often, it was, well, oh well, this must have been how God did it and they just went on from there. Mm -hmm. Again, they didn't, Darwin wasn't on the scene at the time. Uh, but although Darwin wasn't the first to uh, to propose that, that life had changed, it just wasn't as, as in the public consciousness at this point. Others were more disturbed with the implications of this fossil record. And so some proposed multiple successive creations to try to make the Bible fit the science. Mm. And so mm. flood geology, as it's often termed, does not explain this consistent, recognizable order that we see in the fossil record. You know, what would we expect to see if there was a worldwide flood that lasted almost a year, that ripped up continents, as the young earth creationists will say, that ripped up content, continents, threw down mountains, tore apart the ocean floor. All of this is described as happening during this year and, of the flood. And why do they say that the continents are all jumbled up? Like, I don't get why they, you'd have were, to say the that. Continents were, because you have to account for continental drift. Okay, that's right. Mm. Yeah. So you account for continental drift, the evidence that we have for that. Because someone found half a seashell in Brazil and the other half in Australia Liberia. Or something, yeah. Like, oh, they had to be together. Well, that's what really did happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like yeah. Pangea, I've heard that term, like when all the continents were together. Mm -hmm. um, and so they say that was what it was maybe back in Adam and Eve and the garden in Mesopotamia there, but then the flood pushed all these across. I've not looked into at all the geological evidence, if that's oh, no. feasible. No, I have no clue. 
but I, I think I might have been told something like, oh, man, that's a global flood. It's crazy. Who knows right. what can happen? It, it ripped up everything. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> what would we expect to see? What would we just with our experience, our limited experience of following Katrina, the flooding that happened mm -hmm. there? What would we expect to see if all of this happened over a year's time? We'd see this mishmash jumble of plant and animal life just torn limb from limb. But that's not what we see. Mm. You know, creationists will, our flood geologists, creationists will also claim that there was a sorting out process going on. And that's why we see uh, what we see in the fossil record. And so this sorting out uh, process, according to them, is that, you know, the heaviest or the stupidest or the slowest animals died and then sank first. Because <laughs> they couldn't get away. on and on. Because huh? they couldn't get away they from the floodwaters. Because they could, <laughs> yeah. right? They couldn't get away from the floodwaters, right? And so then you find the most agile and the cleverest at the top layer, hmm. in the youngest layers of rock, which is why, according to creationists, we only find humans in the topmost layers of the fossil record. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Again, the problem with that is that's not exactly. That's. I'm sorry. That's not actually what we see in the fossil record. At all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. And so, you know, my question would be if humans are only in the newest layer because they were the most clever or they were the most agile or they were smart to get to high water as the flood was, was rising, uh, you know, my question would be well, was there no one who was old or disabled or sick? <laughs> yeah. or was no one a child? Was no one actually slow? Because we absolutely do not find any human fossils in any layers younger than 4 million years old. That's really an amazing... That is incredible. Fact, ...factoid to bring up in this discussion at this moment because if you're going to appeal to the wild and craziness of a global flood to tell me about tectonic plate movement, yeah. then it would also, you would predict or expect, This I think this is what you're saying, uh, a, a mishmash of different life forms in the fossil record. Mm -hmm. And just for anyone that might be like really dubious of fossil record, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more, but there are ex big exposed slabs of rock yeah. out there in the world Thankfully so, that we can kind of look back and see as sediment was deposited, here's different layers, and you're saying we do not find. There isn't a human skeleton down at the bottom. Yeah. Like there easily could have been in the, hey, it's crazy big flood. If it had all been jumbled, yeah. Wow. Another big problem with this uh, flood geology, and it's conveniently ignored in most creationist literature, is plant evolution. You know, as Ken Miller says, plants are good at a lot of things, but they're not really good at running to high ground. Mm -hmm. And Damn so that. why do we see a, an unfolding of the fossil record when it comes to plants? We don't just see fruiting trees, uh, angiosperms, they're bi biologically called. We don't see angiosperms in the fossil record until the very youngest layers of rock. Uh, but if you had this mis mishmash, tearing up, catastrophic worldwide flood, you would ex basically expect, expect a tossed salad of all plant materials all thrown into the layers. And we, just like um, there's an order into the animals in the fossil record, there is a recognizable order of plants in the fossil record also. Can I ask, while we're on the fossil record... Something that I remember hearing about back when I was a little more familiar with 
both sides of this argument is the, I hope I'm saying this right, the Cambrian explosion, the Cambrian explosion, mm -hmm. this idea that there is a period in the fossil record where diversity seems to really go wild pretty suddenly given the time spans we're talking about. So large diversity in a short period of time. And the argument was this must have been intervention on God's part to suddenly diversify the various species on the planet because I think evolution operating blindly through natural selection and random mutation would just take longer. You would see a more linear maybe progression, not an explosion. So have I heard about it right? Is there such an explosion? And how do you explain it? Well, yes and no. There, uh, there is a term called the Cambrian explosion because this Cambrian uh, geological period, we do see the appearance of a tremendous amount of diversity. But in reality, what's being caused and called an explosion occurred over 20, 30, 40 million years of time. It's only an explosion relatively speaking to, you know, the 4 billion years of life history on earth. Mm -hmm. It's only an explosion from that perspective. Um, another thing that's going on there is we definitely had pre-Cambrian life, but pre-Cambrian life, mm -hmm. as well as Cambrian life, uh, was not, um, they, they weren't vertebrates. There were vertebrates had not appeared yet. Hmm. And so they all had soft bodies and fossilization is biased against organisms with soft bodies. We do have them. We have the imprints, uh -huh. a lot of them, but we don't have as many fossils sure. of soft bodied animals. So what we're seeing there, so we, we, you know, we're limited in what we know about the animal life in the Precambrian. And so we're, since we're limited on knowing what, um, you know, predated the, this Cambrian, you know, it's hard to say, oh, they just came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing in the Cambrian is we are seeing the first uh, appearances in the fossil record of many of the body plans that we see on Earth today. Mm. Uh, there is evidence of even the chordates, which led to us, which led to the vertebrates. Uh, there's evidence of early primitive chordates in the Cambrian. And so all these different body plans that we see mm. in, um, in, our, in our day, uh, we can see the precursors and the primitive versions of that in the Cambrian. But no, it wasn't a Cambrian explosion. I read one biologist said, no, it was really more like the Cambrian slow fuse. Mm. You know, it relatively speaking, maybe, but we're still talking about 20 to 75 million years of of this diversity itself. And then the Cambrian, I don't have it right in front of me, but, you know, it was a, um, a few hundred, a few hundred um, million years itself, you know, in mm -hmm. that point. So you're talking about some diversity there among soft-bodied animals, uh, but you're not talking about anything happening overnight or even in a week or even in a year or a millennia. Yeah. We're talking, yeah. still talking many millions of years. Yeah, it's, it's tough to even really hold it before the mind yeah, sure. a million years. Uh, so, so what would be, like, what's in the evolutionary theory toolkit to explain that kind of rapidity in all these different design, or design plans, sorry. <laughs> Careful, mate. <laughs> Careful with your words. <laughs> uh, the body plans. Uh... 
Hey, this is Tony. Sorry to cut the discussion short there. I know some of you are probably like, hey, I could go for another hour. Well, good, you're in luck because there's another hour of that conversation to come. But we're breaking it up into two episodes. Uh, full disclosure, it's because my kid has arrived and we've been kind of busy. So recording has been a little challenging. Even editing has been a little challenging. So sorry that some of these episodes are slightly uh, behind schedule. But uh, there's another hour or so of that conversation with Janet about evolution uh, coming your way next week. So stay tuned and stay curious.